There has to be some common sense. Yes, sir, they have the car stopped at 10 Grinch, We still don't know who pulled the trigger. everyone and welcome to police off the cuff real crime stories i'm your host retired nypd sergeant bill cannon a 27 year veteran of the nypd this time of the year i've been flying solo a bit more than i want to phil is uh going on a vacation mike geary is coming back from a vacation but uh i didn't want to bother them so i'm flying solo tonight and of course we're going to still be covering the gilgo case uh and the question you see on the screen, Gilgo Beach, is there more to find? The search continues in the list case. Well, is there more to find? And what is the basis for looking? How do the investigators keep looking for that elusive case, the case that may be connected to this Gilgo case, to Rex Uerman? It could be an exhausting search and what are the again we talk about it all the time what are the commonalities in this case that would bring investigators together in order to make sure they're not wasting each other's time what do you have in your case that we have in ours and i i mentioned one uh on another show that police departments do something called a teletype message and someone says oh that sounds so archaic it's very effective because they can put out a teletype message to every police department in the country with one stroke of a keyword. They type out what they want and it goes out to everyone and they tell them the inside uh, investigative um, things they have in their case, secrets to their case that are for law enforcement ears and eyes only. So that is shared amongst police departments if anyone has a case fitting this modus operandi, we are looking for potentiality, you know, that did if Rex Ewerman operated outside of Long Island or New York State into other states, South Carolina, Las Vegas, New Jersey. Is there a possibility that he changed his MO, his modus operandi? Is there a possibility that he changed his signature? Absolutely. We we sort of, my opinion in law enforcement, I like modus operandi. And by saying that, I don't mean, oh, I love the way criminals operate. What I mean by that is that I think it's a good marker that shows the psychological makeup and the way that a criminal acts in the way he perpetrates his or her crime. Uh, another case we were looking at as potentially... You know, and, and we're not saying it's connected, but they're looking at this case from a mother in Queens. This is Mary Murphy, the reporter. She's doing a great job on this case and has done a great job in this case for many, many years. Three children who unfortunately developed a drug habit and turned to sex work for money. She used to walk the streets near Linden Boulevard. Police want to know if she was picked up by the accused serial killer. 
We have no witness accounts of anybody dropping anything. So this is the entrance ramp to the Southern State Parkway? Westbound. We initially reported on the gruesome 2008 murder of Tanya Rush as part of our mystery series. A number of years after part of her body was left near exit 25 on the Southern State Parkway, Newbridge Road in North Belmore. We found a dismembered female body in a, in a black suitcase. State police never revealed which body part they found. But with the arrest of Rex Heuerman in the Gilgo Beach serial killer case, a man who's tied to the murders of four women who were online escorts, we can't ignore where the remains of 39-year-old Rush, also a sex worker, were found and the exits that could take Rex Heuerman home to Massapequa Park. Tanya Rush was last seen on June 23, 2008, walking toward the elevated train near the Van Dyke houses in Brownsville, where she lived. In 2014, one of her daughters remembered the pain of learning. Her loving mother had turned to streetwalking to pay for a crippling drug habit, dangerous work that proved fatal. It was extremely tough. Extremely, like no child wants to hear that. My mom was always cooking. Everybody knows her for making her famous chicken. Investigators looking at cold cases that could potentially be associated with Gilgo have now become very guarded. When we reached out to the New York State Police about the Brooklyn mom, we received a statement. The Tanya Rush case is an open and ongoing investigation. All leads, new and old, get fully investigated. Rush's case sounds similar in one key respect to a 2007 murder on the Long Island Sound that's still unsolved. This black suitcase that washed up on a beach in Mamaroneck, Westchester County, contained the torso of a female who had a tattoo of two cherries above her right breast. The victim's clothing was stuffed into the suitcase with her legs washing up on the other side of the sound on Long Island's North Shore two weeks later. The remains of Cherry's Doe and Tanya Rush were both contained in black suitcases, so that's a common element between the two murders. We're waiting to see if the DNA swab from Rex Ewerman will yield answers in multiple unsolved cases. So interesting, folks. Uh, interesting case. And what is the commonalities when, when we look at this case? Well, Tanya was a sex worker. Um, the area, although he didn't dump, or if it is in fact Rex Ewerman, we don't know that, he didn't dump her remains near Gilgo Beach. The other thing that's a little off is the black suitcase uh, in two of these incidences. So does that mean that Rex Ewerman is not a suspect because of the black suitcase? Absolutely not. Uh, as we had said numerous times before, there's the potentiality that a perpetrator can change up, can change up his modus operandi. And it's something that is done all the time. However, sometimes it can, you know, other, you know, look, there's as many modus operandi as there is people in this world. All right. So saying that a, a perpetrator never changes up, it's not accurate, but they like, that is an identifier. Let me put it that way. Just as in these cases, the commonality of the victims, at least the Gilgo Four, being sex workers, that is definitely a, something that we have to take into consideration. And on the screen, 
we have the four names of the folks, uh, the ladies that were victims that are considered to be the Gildor form, Maureen Brainerd Barnes, Melissa Bartolome, Amberlynn Costello, and Megan Waterman. And so far, out of the Gilgo four, Rex Uerman is being charged with three of them, Melissa Bartolome, Amberlynn Costello, and Megan Waterman. And they are waiting for additional evidence, potentially more DNA, in order to be able to charge the Maureen Brainerd Barnes case. Uh, it seems they are confident that he will be charged with it. Uh, Scott, uh, for, for retired NYPD detective, I don't think he went into the 7-3 to pick her up, kill her, and then drive to Long Island, get rid of the body. Doesn't make sense. You know, Scott, you know, sometimes things don't make sense, to put, put it mildly, you know. You're right. It doesn't make a hell of a lot of sense. However, the other thing is, you know, Rex Schumann, you know, is a man of uh, habit. He likes to cruise areas that he knows. Could he have called her? She was a sex worker. Could he have picked her up? Yeah, he's been known to go to the homes, right? So all those are possibilities. Does it make us not? Many things, you know, don't make sense. That's for sure. You know, and there's most recently a um, a case that uh, another one, the DNA of alleged Google serial killer Rex Schumann is going to be compared to a victim in New Jersey. So when we talk about all these cases, how are they going to link these cases together? The science of DNA, luckily. And uh, here's another case, another interesting thing. And the theme of this, of course, is of this show is, is this investigation over now that he's under arrest? No, absolutely not. There is so much more digging to do and there's so much more comparisons to do. And guess what? It doesn't happen in 24 hours or 48 hours or 72 hours. It takes time. And that's what the investigators have on their side right now. They have time. And this is a case that Rex Schumann or his DNA is being compared to uh, a New Jersey mom, also a sex worker, uh, killed by strangulation. About the arrest in the case, um, but I was surprised that there was a Vegas connection. Police in Las Vegas are looking to see whether the accused Long Island serial killer is connected to cold cases in Sin City. This is a cold case investigation 101, right? A new report claims Rex Huerman's DNA will be examined in the case of a mom from New Jersey who was murdered in Las Vegas. The fact that they've asked for a comparison means that there may be something to compare for him or there may be a reason to eliminate him. Thanks for joining us here on Law and Crime. I'm Anjanette Levy. Rex Huerman currently faces murder charges in the deaths of three women found on Gilgo Beach. He's pleaded not guilty to the murders of Amber Costello, Melissa Bartholomew, and Megan Waterman. While Huerman lived on Long Island for decades, he also had timeshares in Las Vegas. Police searched that property after Huerman's arrest last month. News 12 on Long Island is reporting that Huerman's DNA will be examined in the murder of Victoria Camera. 20 years ago, a gravel truck driver found Camera's body in the desert in Boulder City, about 30 minutes outside of Las Vegas. Camera was originally from New Jersey. Relatives said she turned to prostitution to make a living after having a child at age 17. Camera was strangled, and so were the Gilgo Four. 
Retired Las Vegas Metro police cold case detective Phil Ramos was looking at similarities between Gilgo Beach and Vegas cases before he recently retired. I wasn't surprised about the arrest in the case, um, but I was surprised that there was a Vegas connection. That's clear across the country, and, and we don't often have similarities um, with that kind of distance. Um, you know, there, there, there are a number of active serial killers working right now as we speak, um, and they could, they could be working any series of states, cities, counties, jurisdictions, um, but to have one that far away in New York, that did surprise me, yeah. Ramos didn't work Victoria Camera's case, but he did work the cases of three other sex workers that were similar to the Gilgo Beach murders. Three that I worked are of particular interest that may have some similarities to Gilgo. Um, and that's not to say that it's the same suspect or anything like that. They just have some general similar characteristics in that um, they were, you know, the victimology profiles the same. They were young sex workers. They were uh, murdered and they were left on the side of a road, which is kind of generic similarities because that's 90% of our sex workers that get killed end up on the side of the road out here. It's just out here in Vegas, we have thousands of square mile desert and um, sometimes it takes a long time to find their bodies. So in Ramos's opinion, how significant is it that Las Vegas Metro Police are comparing Rex Shurman's DNA to evidence in Camera's murder? The fact that they've asked for a comparison means that... You know, folks, uh, I'm just going to interrupt here for a second. Uh, as I said, uh, what police departments do when they have a huge arrest like this, they do a teletype message to all the police departments in the United States. And they tell them, this is what we have. This is the MO. This is the signature. This is how many cases we have. We have his DNA on file. We could compare it against your cases. So that's the message that goes out. They depend on other detectives from other jurisdictions, other states, other police departments, other little towns to notify them and say, listen, we have this case that sounds exactly like the M.O. of your guy. Uh, tell me more. And they'll speak to a detective that has intimate, intimate knowledge of the case. And then if it goes even further, they may meet. They may go, a detective from Suffolk County, from the police department or from the DA's office, may go to Las Vegas to compare notes, to look at the crime scene photos, to see commonalities, similarities. And they'll go to the next step if it is that close. So it's not that, you know, people are just, oh, I have a case. They're, they're putting out, Suffolk County puts out the information that they have to every police department in the United States. And then what they get back from that information determines if they go further in their investigation and meet with the detectives from these other jurisdictions. There may be something to compare for him, or there may be a reason to eliminate him. It might be close enough in um, similarity that they're saying, you know, this could be him. We need to see if it is or if it isn't. Um, and that tells me that the reason they're asking for DNA is for that very purpose. Um, there's, there's DNA that they found out here. Is it close enough of a match with the characteristics to Gilgo Beach to warrant that examination? I would, I would say 
there's probably something there to it. I can't say specifically what it is because I'm not the one that's working that case or that follow up on it, but there, there very well may be something to it. And it may be a connection or it may be an elimination result. I contacted Las Vegas Metro for a comment. A spokesperson issued a brief statement. We are aware of Rex Huerman's connection to Las Vegas. We are currently reviewing our unsolved cases to see if he has any involvement. This is a cold case investigation 101, right? So you look for cases, or we refer to as companion cases, that can, can be connected to yours. Retired NYPD homicide detective Joe Jackalone has been following the Long Island serial killer case closely for years. Right, Each one of those cases could hold a piece or a piece of evidence or some other information that can help you solve a whole variety of crimes. So this is the right move by police departments. I'm a little upset that it takes the news media to go out there and uncover this and say to the police department, hey, here are these four or five cases that are kind of similar in your jurisdiction. Why don't you take a closer look? Jacqueline. I, I don't think that, that that is what's happening. And as I said, police departments, when they're making a big arrest like this, when they have a, an investigation like this, that's solved, they'll send out a teletype message and then information comes back to them. And that's how uh, connections are made. Uh, I don't think they get, they're relying on the media to go out there and say, oh, you've got cases that fit. I think that's uh, erroneous. Loan says cold cases are sometimes pushed to the back burner for lack of evidence or for other reasons. I've said this all along that the police executive, whoever's in charge, is the one that dictates how cold cases get handled. Unfortunately, old homicide cases, old missing persons, even old rape cases kind of get pushed to the side for things that are happening in the now that, that police chiefs are being basically questioned on. Your robberies, your grand losses, and these old homicides take up a lot of time and effort, and then they get kind of pushed to the side because when the chief has to stand up and say crime is up or crime is down in his or her community, they're not talking so much about the homicides. They're talking about all the robbery, the street robberies, the street crimes. Those are the things that people are really concerned about. You know, one of the things that uh, this that Sergeant Jack alone, retired Sergeant Jack alone, is saying he's he's correct because first of all, DNA and sex evidence collection kits they cost a lot of money to process. And guess what? Many municipalities don't want to spend the money. So you could have a victim of a rape, and the perpetrator is still out there, and because he's not known. They don't want to spend the money doing the DNA. So the, the case sits on a shelf. Same is true with homicides. Homicide investigation costs money. Detectives have to travel. They have to take planes to other places. It costs lots of money. And what he's saying is the politics of law enforcement. Police executives aren't have, they're not going to have to answer to old homicides. They're going to have to answer to new homicides. And that's how they get promoted, based on their crime statistics in the now, not the past. So Jack alone is quite correct when he talks about that. And the other thing, and, you know, the, it seems when I mention this, the public is horrified. Oh, my God. Rape kits that have never been tested? Well, then talk to your politicians, you know. Talk to your mayors. Talk to your governors why this is being done. Defund the police. Remember that saying? That's one of the things that happen when they defund the police. Funds for things like this, for investigations, there is none. There's no money for detective overtime. There's no money for police officer overtime. And surely there's not hundreds and thousands and millions of dollars 
to test crime scenes for DNA, which I don't know why the public thinks it's free. You send something to Arthrum Labs, which is one of the top labs in the country. I'm sure they're going to give law enforcement a big bill for that, as they should. It's highly skilled work. But, you know, when you hear that this is happening, and I know when we bring, we shine the light on this, people were shocked. Oh, my God. And I always bring up the case of Eliza Fletcher. Last year, jogging in Memphis at 4 o'clock, 4.15 in the morning, grabbed off the street by some savage who was out on parole, a, a, a convicted kidnapper, robber, rapist. He grabs her and she fought so hard he shot and killed her. He was a, It was an attempted rape. And guess what? Six months prior or, or longer than that, nine months before that, he was arrested, uh, excuse me, a rape kit was put in where he was the suspect and it was never submitted. Had it, would, had it have been submitted, potentially the life of Eliza Fletcher would have been saved because the, the perp Cleotha Abstin would have been in jail or in prison where he belongs. But because that kit was never tested, Eliza Fletcher lost her life. Unfortunately, that kind of pushes these things that way. Jacqueline says there are obvious similarities between the Gilgo Four and some of the victims in Las Vegas. A Las Vegas TV station reports that the bodies of five sex workers were found dumped off of the side of roadways between 2003 and 2006, and that they were wrapped in cloth, much like the Gilgo Four. Channel 13 reports that Huerman had timeshares in Vegas dating back to 2004. In policing, we look at two similarities as a pattern. So unfortunately, I know people are saying, well, these girls were asphyxiated or strangled. And unfortunately, in a lot of these homicides that you deal with uh, victims in the sex trade, this is the type of uh, manner of death and cause of death that you, you deal with. It's homicide strangulation or homicide asphyxia. And that's the way it goes because it's about that power. It's about that you know, watching somebody die. And it's, and it's just unfortunate. That's the way it goes. You know, what they're talking about also, I mean, is uh, he's he's 100% correct. And the, the thing is, is that because they're sex workers, doesn't specifically say, oh, that this is a pattern. This is Rex Schumann. Because sex workers, unfortunately, and especially in cities like Las Vegas, uh, they're the victims of murder all the time. Uh, it's a dangerous, dangerous profession. And that doesn't mean we don't investigate it. However, that also doesn't mean that Rex Uerman is the perpetrator in this. However, we must investigate it. To You heard the, uh, the Nevada detective, the Las Vegas detective said, it's as important to, to match up as it is to eliminate. Because now that you eliminate... You eliminate the possibility that Rex Schuerman was the perpetrator in this case. And that's uh, that's important also. Something that many people have been uh, asking about ever since, uh, I think, um, Johnny, uh, Johnny Ray. You know, Johnny Ray, the attorney, um, he's also a, um, I, I remember that name Johnny Ray. He was also, I think, a blues singer. Because when I hear that name, Johnny Ray, I keep thinking of uh, a Van Morrison song where he mentions a, a blues singer named Johnny Ray. So I think of that. But 
Johnny John Ray, let's say John Ray, the um, the attorney for Shannon Gilbert, he's been in the consciousness of this case for like 12 years since it happened, going on 13 years. And he wanted to keep this case in the public consciousness. And if that was his goal, I think he did a good job. But I don't think a lot, not all of us have listened or understood the circumstances behind, behind um, Shannon Gilbert's uh, disappearance that night. And she was the case that set the ball rolling. And so I'm going to play a little bit of this. And I think many of you are going to be surprised when you hear this. I'm Detective Lieutenant Kevin Byra, the commanding officer of the Suffolk County Police Homicide Section. This video was made to explain the circumstances surrounding the three 911 calls made on the day Shannon Gilbert went missing. The full, unedited 911 calls are available, and I encourage people to listen to them in their entirety. Portions of the call taken out of context will sound sensational. During the early morning hours of May 1st, 2010, Shannon Gilbert, a Craigslist sex worker and resident of Jersey City, New Jersey, traveled from Manhattan to meet a client, Joseph Brewer, at his home at 8 The Fairway, Oak Beach, New York. Shannon was driven to Oak Beach from Manhattan by her driver, Michael Pack. Neither one was familiar with the area, neither one had been there before, and neither one had met Brewer before. Pack waited in the car while Shannon was inside with Brewer. Pack was her de facto security. At 4.51 a.m., while at Brewer's house, Shannon called 911. This call lasts for more than 21 minutes. At times, Shannon is speaking calmly, but slurring her words. At times, she is not responsive, and at times, she is screaming. During this call, Brewer and Pack are heard trying to get Shannon to leave the house. Shannon eventually does leave the house and runs to Gus Coletti's house, located at 17 The Fairway, which causes him to call 911 at 5.22 a.m. State Police, Trooper Fry. State Police. Yeah, there's somebody asking me. I'm sorry? There's somebody asking me. Where are you? There's somebody asking me. Okay, where are you? There's somebody asking me. Where are you, ma'am? I don't know. You're driving right now? No, I'm inside the house. I'm sorry? I'm inside the house. What house? I don't know. Can you trace where I am? I'm sorry? Can you trace where I am? No, I can't. What's your callback number you're calling from? Huh? What phone number are you calling from? Somebody's asking me. Please. Are you in Suffolk County or Nassau County? Um, I'm in Long Island. Where on Long Island are you? Okay, what's No. 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 Stop. No. Where in Long Island are you? In Suffolk County? Nassau County? Huh?
Why? 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 Please, into the door. No, No, please. 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 Are you, what's the matter? Are you okay? What are you going to do? What are you going to do to me? Why? Huh? Are you okay? 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 Shannon then ran from Brewer's house at 8 the fairway to Gus Coletti's house at 17 the fairway, a distance of two-tenths of a mile. Shannon. Shannon interacts with Coletti. He invites her inside his home. Shannon. 
She then runs from Coletti's home, prompting Coletti to call 911. After Coletti's call, Shannon then runs another two-tenths of a mile to another home at 43 the Bayou, prompting a third 911 call made at 5.30 a.m. by Barbara Brennan. Okay, Police, location of emergency. Yes, this, uh, I live at Oak Beach in the association. There's a young girl about 14 years old running around here screaming, and there's some guy trying to follow her. What's the address, Dale? I'm at 17 The Fairway. All right. Do you have a description of the girl or the boy? Pardon me? Do you have a description of the girl or the boy? The girl is about 14 years old, got blonde hair, very small. The boy, I can't tell. He was in like a, a, a suburban. What color? Uh, black. Did you happen to get a plate number or anything? No, I didn't. Okay, telephone number you're calling from? Four. Are they still on the fairway? Uh, they just went past the gatehouse where the entrance is. And what's the name of the complex? It's Oak Beach Association. Okay. okay. Out at by Robert Moses. All right. We got somebody over there. I'll be watching. Oh, okay. Bye. Suffolk Police 875. What is the location of your emergency? Uh, 40, 43 The Bayou. Some woman is knocking at my door. What town are you in? Oak Beach Association. What's the nearest corner street now? Uh, Ocean Parkway. She says she's in danger. Do you know her or no? No, I don't. I'm not letting her in. She's banging on your door now? Yes. Did she say what kind of danger? No. Oh. And we live in a gated community. What's your name, ma'am? Uh, Barbara Brennan. Was there a name to that community? Uh, Oak Beach Association. Oak Beach Association. And I have an elderly mother here. All right, I'll get somebody right over there, okay? Okay, thank you. You're welcome. This is drone footage and footage shot from the ground showing the marshland. It was taken at the same time of year and time of day as when Shannon went missing. These reeds can grow over 12 feet tall. They can disorient someone inside them, causing them to lose a sense of direction. One cannot tell where the highway is or where the bay is. The reeds and brush can become impenetrable in places. There's a trench running east and west through the marshland. This was created to allow mosquito control. It is believed that Shannon followed this trench. Personal belongings of hers were found just north of the trench. Shannon's remains were found north of the trench, about 158 feet south of Ocean Parkway, approximately three quarters of a mile from where she was last seen. There has been information received during the course of this investigation that other people might be involved in this incident. 
They have all been investigated, and there is no reason to believe at this time that anyone else is involved in this tragic series of events. The police responded to Coletti and Brennan's 911 calls. Pack, Brewer, and Shannon were all gone. Gus Coletti provided a description of Pack's car, which was also gone. This created the possibility that Shannon had been driven out of the area, which caused a delay in the initial search for her. The police department has thoroughly investigated this case for more than a decade. The official cause of Shannon's death is undetermined. This official classification means there is insufficient or no evidence to determine or even to exclude an actual cause of death. The Gilbert family has hired a private pathologist to conduct an autopsy. His determination is there is insufficient information to determine the definite cause of death, but the autopsy findings are consistent with homicidal strangulation. That pathologist report will be made available. This case, including the 911 call and all of the other cases commonly referred to as Gilgo in their entirety are made available to the Behavioral Analysis Unit or BAU of the FBI. As part of BAU's review of the case, they retained the services of a psychiatrist to review Shannon's words and actions on the 911 tape and also to review the facts of the case. BAU's opinion based on their review of Shannon's case, the scene, the 911 calls, and a psychiatrist review is that Shannon Gilbert's death is not consistent with Shannon being the victim of violence or of a violent offender. Significant differences between Shannon's death and the circumstances surrounding the other victims' deaths were also highlighted by BAU. The Suffolk County Police Department is open to evaluate any evidence to be able to help us and all involved determine a definite cause of death. However, based on the evidence, the facts, and the totality of the circumstances, the prevailing opinion is that Shannon's death, while tragic, was not a murder and is most likely an accident. Well, you know, folks, that's a tough one, I think, for everyone uh, to accept uh, based on the fact, you know, that there was so much corruption out in Suffolk County with this Chief Burke. And when they first said this back, don't forget, this was May of 2010. And as we recall, if we all have our 32-page bail application form here, that the first bodies were found on December 11th, 2010. So Shannon Gilbert went missing in May. So May, June, July, August, September, October, November, December. That's when they were searching in that area and not necessarily for Shannon Gilbert, but that's when they discovered the four bodies that became known as the, the Gilgo Four. And they found Shannon Gilbert's body much later, not right at that same time. That's the, the four bodies that they're referring to as the Gilgo Four. And that's maybe because of Shannon Gilbert and the light that was shown on this case that it got the amount of attention that it did uh, based on these facts. Um, you know, we, we've heard a lot of um, we've heard a lot of different things in this case, especially from we spoke about uh, Johnny Ray, the, the attorney for the Gilbert uh, Shannon Gilbert's family. And, you know, he came up with some uh, sort of out there theories. I mean, I think if we, I, I'm glad that we listened to the 911 tape and we gave it in its context and we had the Suffolk County homicide lieutenant explaining it 
at least I think anyone that would hear this, I think, would be satisfied with the fact that, if only this fact, that Shannon Gilbert was not killed by Rex Ewerman. I think the facts and circumstances that we listened to tonight and the fact that they've investigated that case for 10, 12 years, that I think that would exclude Rex Ewerman from that. And the when they talk about the autopsy, I believe that initially the Suffolk County medical examiner uh, did an autopsy on Shannon Gilbert. And the, the cause of death, I believe, was undetermined. So he didn't rule it was a homicide. And then I think the family hired um, famous pathologist Michael Bodden, who formerly was the uh, chief medical examiner of New York City many, many, many years ago. He's an old guy now. And he ruled that the cause of death was undetermined, but the facts and circumstances, he, he still ruled it death by homicidal means, which means death caused by another. And I believe he also had ruled that the hyoid bone was broken, which is also usually a sign of asphyxia, although there's other ways that the hyoid bone could be broken besides asphyxia. So all of those, for all of those reasons, um, it's still, uh, again, unsolved. But I think we can surmise by uh, listening to that the 911 tapes in that, that she's not a Rex Ewerman victim. I would, you know, I think the police are, are looking to say that. I think Rodney Harrison was satisfied with that, and he probably dug deep into the case when he became the Suffolk County Police Commissioner. I'm going to play a little bit now of Johnny Ray, and just to see, you know, we talk about his whether or not he is um, he is credible. Let's let's hear what he has to say here. Were there? You you spoke afterwards after their lawyer sort of left. What, what did you make of the whole thing? Well, what I make of it is very simple, and that is that um, this lady uh, is is conning everybody. And she's been doing that for years. She's managed to, for example, uh, go on food stamps when she, her husband made the kind of money she, he, he made. They own numerous properties all over they, in several states. Uh, these are not poor people. And they've managed to raise 40, at last count today, $44,000 in the GoFundMe. And they're not victims. Uh, th 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 this is all a big put on. And it, what makes it worse is that it is overwhelmingly likely that this woman, uh, Miss Ellerup, and her uh, the other adults, certainly Miss Ellerup, knew very well what was going on in that house with uh, Mr. Hewerman downstairs in the basement with uh, sex workers. And he had no. But how, sex how can you say that though? I mean, John, John, that's a really big allegation to make. I mean, the police have said. That, that they didn't know anything. And we've seen in other cases with serial killers that the families don't know anything. These guys are sickos and masterminds and psychotic and they can compartmentalize. I mean, how can you, how can you go on national TV and say that you know that they knew something? I can say that for several reasons. First of all, uh, she, she lived in that little tiny house and, there's, and, and according to her own lawyers, 
they, there's no a soundproof room downstairs. It would be virtually impossible in this day and age where they together for 27 years in that little tiny house that she had no knowledge with cell phones and, and the internet. She had no knowledge whatsoever of what he was up to all those years downstairs. That's the first problem we have with this. The second problem is the way she's behaved is completely antithetical to what a person would do under similar circumstances if they were not involved. You know, she, she, not one of those people, her, her, her and, or her children have, a, have said anything by way of sympathy for any of the victims of, of, of the serial killer, no matter what. They've just completely ignored that. They sit on the front porch, they laugh, they give the, the European uh, middle finger uh, to, to the press. Well, listen, they, I mean, all the pictures I've seen, I've seen them looking very sad outside and, and maybe they're just, I mean, could they still just be in denial and shock and hoping that it's, that it's not true? And well, then the thing you said about her not knowing if, if he had escorts over there, I mean, people just have weird marriages. Maybe she just, maybe they had some kind of weird arrangement where he was allowed to have the escorts downstairs having sex with the escorts downstairs, but that doesn't mean that she knew that he was a killer. That, that, that doesn't mean she didn't, and she should be a suspect. When two of her hairs are found on the tape wrapping up two of the victims, it You know, folks, I wanted to show that uh, as to um, the credibility of, of Johnny Ray. Uh, do, do we find him credible? When he said about that doesn't mean she's not a suspect. And the fact that they found there was actually three hairs on bodies of the victims, that still doesn't make her a suspect. And I feel like every single night when I do this show, I explain transfer evidence. Well, every night that I do the show, not every single night, the nights that I do the show, um, transfer evidence. If you live in a home with somebody and their hair gets all over things. It's going to get on your clothing. It's going to be brought into your car, and it's going to get on other things. So that's transfer evidence, and I know that that this attorney knows that. He knows what transfer. So how he could say that this makes her a suspect? Did she know about Rex Human's behavior? He's saying she does, and he says he has a witness. And the only reason I'm bringing this up is because he is Shannon Gilbert's family's attorney. And he's been around this case of 12 or 13 years. I think one of the first things, not the first thing, but one of the things on Rodney Harrison's um, agenda when he took over the Suffolk County Police was to have a sit down with John Ray, attorney John Ray, and hear what he had to say. So he didn't discount anything that he said. He sat down with him and spoke with the guy. Does, did he deserve that interview? Or, or or the things he say, he says, is it incredible? And it does does that disqualify him, folks? This is police off the cuff, real crime stories. If you like real crime, true crime from a police perspective, then you're in the right place. And if you're not subscribed to us, what are you waiting for? Go on our YouTube, hit that subscribe button, give us a thumbs up, and ring that bell. If you want to support us financially, we have a Patreon with three different levels. We also have a YouTube channel membership with, count them, five different levels. And you see the folks in the green font in our chat. They're part of our YouTube friends, our YouTube family, and we really appreciate them. This case is um, is just, it, it's hugely complicated, and it's hugely interesting. I think this case 
has caught the imagination of people worldwide, not just nationally, but internationally. And why is that? Is that because, well, it's probably one of the reasons is because serial killers are so rare. It doesn't happen so often these days, right? It's not a thing that we see all the time. And I think that what intrigues people a lot now is the science. This DNA, this investigative genetic genealogy, every time I hear about it, every time I see that Orthram Labs or another lab has made an identification using investigative genetic genealogy, sometimes on cases that are 30 years old, I'm mesmerized by that. I am so thrilled by that, that this tool, this 21st century tool, is going to put the most evil among us and held them accountable, put them in prison forever, or in states that allow it, give them the death penalty. I want to play a little bit of Rodney Harrison's interview with this uh, Newsday interviewer. It's a horrible accident. It's a horrible accident. And uh, as of as right now. Now, Rodney is talking about the Shannon Gilbert case. So I'm not, when I say all these things, this is what the police have determined that Shannon Gilbert's death was an accident. You can believe, not believe it. You could say, oh, all this corruption. But this is what the Suffolk County Police and the Suffolk County DA's office are surmising from all the evidence on that case. Uh, uh, myself and uh, the investigators assigned to the homicide squad uh, still believe that it was just an uh, incident where uh, she ran into the marsh and unfortunately drowned uh, on, that, on that horrible day. You said that the green avalanche, the Chevy avalanche, was key. How yeah. did you get there? <clears throat> so uh, one of the investigators that was assigned to the task force, uh, she came from the state police. And uh, I'll, I'll get into how the state police uh, became part of the task force in a second. But they had access to a certain type of database that they were able to track down a green avalanche inside that Massapequa Park box. And then we were able to take a look at that car being registered to um, our subject, Rex Hurman. And once we got that information, that intel, then we started looking to uh, Rex Hurman's lifestyle. Uh, we started working with the district attorney's office and uh, taking a look at, at, at phone records and getting subpoenas for a host of other things. And it really assisted us in uh, honing in our efforts into uh, Mr. Hurman. I've investigated homicides personally. Um, I was a detective in the 7-1 squad. Homicide investigations don't always go in the right direction. Uh, the first subject that you identify sometimes is not always the individual who um, is held accountable. Uh, a lot of people are challenged in the Suffolk County Police Department regarding beginning steps in the investigation and, and what was done wrong. And I think it's very unfair. Uh, I, I will say this, that uh, this was a long journey of a case. Uh, there was some good work done prior to me getting here. I want to make sure that this is very clear regarding identifying the, the box in Massapequa Park and as well as uh, over in Midtown Manhattan. Um, but just putting that dedicated team together, um, putting that one investigator from the state police and putting them to the task force and now... She, she using her database helped us uh, really get this case some, some good legs and 
uh, be able to identify Rex Hurman and go forward with being able to place him under arrest. Now, when you say the box, you're talking about the box that <clears throat> was made identifiable through cell phone Correct. data analysis. Correct. Let me ask you this. You said publicly you called Rex Hurman a demon. Ladies and gentlemen, Rex Hurman is a demon that walks among us, a predator that ruined families. At which point did you decide that that was the best characterization of him? Yeah, you know, and a lot of people have, uh, I want to say, challenged me for using that word. Uh, I'm going to tell everybody right now that I'm speaking on behalf of the family. Um, anybody that uh, lost a loved one to this predator, I'm sure they feel the same way. Uh, and as I was uh, writing out my talking points, and as, as well as I was working with my uh, PIO, uh, we felt that was the right word. Um, this is somebody that ruined families. And uh, I'm just blessed to be in a position to see him being held accountable. Uh, I will also share there's a lot more work to be, that needs to be done. We still have six other bodies that we need to um, identify who the killer is. Um, but as of, as of now, uh, it was just really great work by the men and women of the task force. Uh, I got to thank my Detective Lieutenant Kevin Byer. I got to thank uh, some of the individuals uh, assigned from the district attorney's office. There was a, a retired lieutenant by the name of Rich Zacharis, and there's another retired lieutenant. You know, they've done a, uh, a fantab fantabulous, I almost used the Van Morrison word, a fantabulous night for a romance, you know. They've done a fantastic job. They really have, um, you know, I'm, unless you've worked a big homicide case with many moving parts, it's hard to understand the complexity of it. It really is. And it's, it's, you know, just keeping track of things, the investigation, the indexing, the making sure that the investigators speak to one another, they talk to one another, they share information. That in itself is so, so, so important. And that's how things get done. That's how things get solved. And, you know, what about everyone? Everyone is asking, all right, you got four cases, three, three actually, that Rex Hewerman is being charged with, and a fourth that pretty much the police are insisting he's going to be charged with shortly. What about those other six bodies? How are we going to connect Rex Hewerman to those? Or are we? Or did he not do all those, the other six? Is there another killer? Is there another serial killer out there? That, I think, would even be scarier for people of the Long Island area to think that this isn't over with. We have a serial killer. We may not have the serial killer. Did he kill the other six women? And I think that, you know, it's it's pretty amazing to think that um, could, is this all he, is this his life's work? And hate to sort of list a serial killer that his work is killing people. But is this the totality of his 59 years, these 11 bodies? Or did he do work in other places? Did he commit murders in other areas? And my 
experience, my thoughts, and you guys, I appreciate your comments on this. Do you think Rex Hewerman started doing this in 2010? 2010 is, what, 23 years ago, right? So we figure that uh, Rex Hewerman's 59, right? He would have been 36 years old. Do you think that's when he started? Or we had this conversation numerous times, or did he start much earlier in his life? What were some of the signs that Rex, were there any signs that Rex Human was or was going to be a serial killer? We always talk about, did he kill animals? You know, was he a bedwetter? You know, uh, some of the obvious things we talk about when we had Dr. Joni on, Dr. Joni Johnston. You know, she insisted that, yes, some of those things are indicators, but not every single serial killer has all those traits. So what what did people notice about him? Obviously, when his classmates at Burner High School were queried, they said he was a loner, strange guy, right? A big, strange guy. Uh, what was he like? After high school, if he's an architect, he's got to have a college degree. Where did he go to college? What was he like in college? What was he doing when he was in college? Could he have committed murders when he was in college before anyone even was raised up to him? All of these things are questions that we all have. And will time will tell. Time will tell whether he's got what we would say in the police profession as more bodies on him. Time will tell us, but we don't know right now. This is Mary Murphy, a reporter for WPIX, who's been with this case a great deal of time. In my opinion, she's done a great job on this case. And the hope that a tip would come in that would change everything. The Gilgo Beach Task Force tracked Rex Hewerman for more than a year with physical and digital surveillance. A 32-page court affidavit claimed prosecutors had images of Hewerman buying extra minutes on his burner phones, hoping they weren't traceable. But experts did eventually trace his burners, they say, and some victims' phones to cell sites near Hewerman's place of work in Midtown Manhattan and four cell towers in Massapequa Park that were close to his home. And that was mapped out. That was called the box. It wasn't easy, Mary. Very, very difficult work. Once Hewerman was identified as the person of interest. We executed over 300 subpoenas, search warrants pertaining to this individual. That allowed the task force to check Hewerman's phone records and his online activity. In a 14-month period, he had over 200 searches pertaining to uh, the Gilgo investigation. And by using fake online profiles, Hewerman also allegedly searched for six subjects like torture porn and child porn. He's a demon. He's a, he's an animal. He's Folks, that is so interesting when we try to uh, show traits that make his personality that of a potential serial killer. And surely those searches, those sick Internet searches show a part of his personality that obviously most sane people are not combing the internet and child porn sites and sadistic porn sites. And that 
as Professor Mike Geary would say, is consciousness of guilt. Consciousness of guilt as well as premeditation as he is searching sites to see if the police are on to him. So all of those things are quite, quite interesting. He's just somebody that uh, should not be around other human beings. The affidavit revealed Hewerman was nailed with his own DNA and that of his wife. After collecting 11 bottles from the family trash in 2022, investigators swabbed them for genetic material. Lab results this year indicated female hairs found on three victims' bodies likely came from female DNA in the Hewerman household or car. The linchpin that sealed up the case happened when cops snatched a pizza box that Rex Hewerman allegedly tossed in a trash can near his Midtown office. When scientists tested the DNA recovered from the uneaten pizza crust, they say it matched DNA from the burlap used to wrap victim Megan Waterman. When we come back, an in-depth look at the decade long. So, so interesting. And Rodney Harrison had also said, remember, they spoke about, you know, when is it time to close down an investigation? When is it time to pull the trigger on that investigation? And there are lots of things to think about. When, when is it time? Well, there were two major reasons while, why the investigators, why Rodney Harrison, why Ray Tierney, and the Gilgo Beach Task Force decided to pull the trigger on this case. And number one, number one, was that they felt that he was still living the life of a serial killer and he might kill again. He was still using burner phones to contact sex workers. And another reason, and even this may be a larger reason than the first one is that the security of the case, and that may sound strange to some of you folks outside of police work, but meaning that they were afraid that Rex Schumann could be tipped off, somehow tipped off. And you might say, oh, what cop, what person involved in this is going to tip him off? Remember when Ray Tierney said 300 subpoenas? were issued for things like cell phones, his computer searches. At the end of those subpoenas, there were human beings. Could those people perhaps even mistakenly notify the subject of those subpoenas? Yes. And what happens then? The case falls apart when the subject finds out that the police are on to him. And they were afraid that potentially Rex Schuerman could flee the jurisdiction leave town, right? Get out of the area. And then they would not only have to arrest him, they would have to find him, right? And that's not one of the things that they wanted to do in addition to everything else they were doing, was to go search for this perpetrator. So besides the fact that he was, um, they were afraid that he would kill again. Again, the, 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 the fact that he, he could get raised up and figure out that the police were on to him and flee the jurisdiction, that certainly was an issue also. Uh, 
Let me play a little bit from Law and Crime. Looks like it's not ready to go. Oh, there we go. Identify her once and for all. Welcome to Sidebar here on Law and Crime. I'm Anjanette Levy. No one knew Karen Vergata's name, only that part of her skull had been found on Gilgo Beach, her legs found on Fire Island years prior. But recently, officials in Suffolk County on Long Island sent DNA from the remains to Othram Labs in Texas. Othram works with law enforcement officials to identify remains and help solve cold cases. Othram used genetic genealogy to identify Karen Vergata. Suffolk County officials haven't said whether they believe Vergata's murder is connected to the Gilgo Four. Rex Huerman is a 55-year-old architect from Massapequa Park. He faces charges in the murders of three of the Gilgo Four. He's pleaded not guilty to the murders of Melissa Bartholomew, Amber Costello, and Megan Waterman. The DA says he is the prime suspect in the murders of Maureen Brainerd Barnes. Huerman insists through his attorney that he didn't do this and that he's innocent. Joining me to discuss the technology used to identify Karen Vergata, the Fire Island Jane Doe, is Kristen Middleman. She's the Chief Development Officer with Othram Labs. Othram helped identify uh, the Fire Island Jane Doe and has worked on other cases across the country. Uh, we've featured them in other cases before. They also, Othram Labs also identified the Brian Koberger's DNA on the knife sheath in the Idaho case of Ethan Chapin, Madison Mogan, Zena Canoble, and uh, Kaylee Gonsalves. So this lab is probably one of the premier labs across the country. And of course, they do a lot of work with law enforcement and the FBI. For as well. Kristen, uh, thanks for coming on to Sidebar. We appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me on. I want to start at the beginning uh, with this because uh, this testing is different from your typical DNA testing. Of course, you have to have a DNA profile to do what you do, uh, but you guys use a different type of profile to do the investigative genetic genealogy. It's called a SNP, uh, if I am saying that right. So tell us how you really start at the beginning and go about building these family trees and everything like that off of a DNA profile, uh, an STR profile that you later, I guess, I don't know, to develop another type of profile for. Absolutely. So um, standard forensic testing that's been used for 30 years, DNA testing that has gone to court all this time, is known as STR testing. There you're looking at 20 STR markers and you're comparing them to the known database of perpetrators that, that is owned by the FBI, CODIS. So sometimes you guys may have heard that as CODIS testing. If someone is in the known perpetrator database, then you have a direct hit. But your DNA would have to be in there or maybe the DNA of your child, like a direct familiar relationship. What we do is we build profiles that have hundreds and hundreds of thousands of markers, up to a million markers. So these profiles have all of these SNP markers that you just discussed. And when you upload those to genealogical databases consented for law enforcement use, you're able to get really distant relationships. The more markers you have, the more distant relationships you can actually um, reach. And so you can get a sixth cousin, a fifth cousin, a fourth cousin, and all of us are related to some degree. Most, most areas in the United States, they were founded from 
a few key families. And so to some degree, there'll be some relative in there. And they're not the relatives that come home for Thanksgiving with you, not the relatives that you know or you would call, but there would be some match in these databases. Then our um, genealogists go in, our genealogy team, just like you said, and they look at these matches and they figure out who the most recent common ancestor is on a tree. And then they build the tree back down until the puzzle piece that the person that we're trying to identify fits right into a family tree. At that point, we return that lead back to investigators and they contextualize it within their investigation. Amazing, right? I mean, it's so interesting. And I've played this before. Uh, her and her husband run Othran Labs. Uh, brilliant family, uh, brilliant people. It's it's just an incredible technology. And uh, it's going, you know, I think it's going to make um, serial killers as we know it. And perhaps, you know, serial rapists, a thing of the past. And I think we would all love to see that, that that's a thing of the past because it would be an amazing thing that they could identify these people early on in their criminal career. Folks, if you're looking for a great attorney in the New York City metropolitan area, then Joe Murray is your man. Joe's a retired member of the service, retired NYPD police officer, and a fantastic defense attorney. You can get a hold of Joe on his cell at 718-514-3855. Email him at joe at jmurray-law.com. And his website is jmurray-law.com. Joe is not only a fantastic attorney, but a huge supporter of the Police Off the Cuff show. You know, many folks had been talking about also uh, this, uh, another sex worker, uh, Nikki Brass. And she also told some tale how um, she had... uh, went out on a date with Rex Schuerman in 2015 and she knew back then he went, which is a little bit crazy. I'm going to play a little bit of this in interview um, on CNN with Anderson Cooper. Pickup artist named Nikki Brass. She said she went on a date with the suspect in the summer of 2015. How did you first encounter the man you believe to be the Gilgo killer? I don't believe it to be him for one. I, you're, you're convinced I am, this is him. I am convinced. I am a thousand percent sure. So this guy reaches out to you. Did he say immediately he wanted you to come to his house? Yes. But the issue was he lives in Nassau County mm-hmm. and he was in Massapequa. And I'm not familiar with the area and I'm very locationally challenged. Mm-hmm. Like I need a GPS to go home. And I could live there for five years. Like, I'm, I'm bad. So, I, and I didn't have friends nearby in case anything happened. So I asked him if he would meet me in Port Jeff at the steam room because in Port Jeff, it's a small town. I it's knew a the, restaurant. Yeah. Okay. It's a small town. I knew the area. I had friends locally mm-hmm. and people nearby that if something were to go wrong, they could be there quickly. So you do meet with him at the restaurant in Port Jefferson? Yeah, well, before I met him, I was at Chuck E. Cheese with my sister. And I had said to her, I showed her a picture, and I said, hey, this is who I'm going out with tonight. If anything happens, this is what he looks like. So, And I would do that. I, I would do that for every time I did it just for my own safety. No, um, I think I jumped ahead. So he, he reached out to you. You asked him for a picture. 
Yeah, because I said I, I wanted to know who I was looking for. I didn't want to show up at a restaurant and be like, "Who who's meeting me here, you know what I mean? So, and you showed the picture to your sister and gave her the picture. I, I didn't give it to her. I showed it to her on my phone, and mm -hmm. I said, this is who I'm going to be with, so you know what he looks like and who it is. Um, at the time, we used fake names, so I couldn't give her a name. Um, and then we met. We didn't meet in front of his car or where I could have gotten a plate or a description of it. We met directly in front of the restaurant. What did you think when you first saw him? Oh, my God, he's massive. At the time, I was, you know, 24 years old. I was like 120, 130 pounds, hadn't, you know, hadn't had kids yet. And he was a gigantic man. Like, I had to look up at him, gigantic. And it wasn't just his height, it was his weight, it was everything. He was just this huge, very, like, overbearing type mm. of weight. Like, he almost carried his weight to intimidate. Mm. And what was he like when you were sitting across the table from him? Um, so, before we sat down, he shook my hand, which I just have to say, there is no reason to have a handshake that firm. Like... <laughs> <laughs> He had, a, he had a really strong handshake. Yeah, like, I get I get that firm handshake to show confidence. Right. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. But his was, like... Like, aggressive, like, 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 a, like an you. aggressive grip. Wow. You know what I mean? Other than that, he seemed normal. He seemed like... He told me, hey, well, well, first of all, right, when we sat down, I said, hi, it's nice to meet you. My real name's Nikki. Mm -hmm. And he just said Rex. He didn't give me a last name or anything. Mm -hmm. We sat down. He seemed perfectly normal at first. He seemed like your typical guy who was bored with his life, you know, and wanted some kind of excitement. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. um, it didn't get weird until he asked me if I was a true crime fan. Wait a minute. He asked you if you were a true crime fan. He asked if I was a true crime fan, and I am. Like, uh -huh. I am a, I'm a serial killer buff. I won't even lie. I... Uh -huh. It was when he said, well, do you know about the Gilgo Beach, the Gilgo Beach murders? He actually brought it up. Yeah. He said, so he has said to me exactly, do you know about the Gilgo Beach murders? And I was like, yeah, I'm from Long Island. Everybody from Long Island knows right. about them. You know what I mean? Um, and that's when he started talking about it. But here's the thing. When he brought it up, his whole demeanor changed. It, it, he, he sat up straighter, you know. He had like a smirk on his face. He seemed almost like too excited to talk about it. And then once he did start talking about it, it didn't seem like a true crime fan who just knows information they've seen on TV or read. Mm -hmm. It seemed like somebody who was reliving it. One, one thing I remember specifically was he said to me, how do you think they get rid of the bodies without going noticed? And I said, I have no clue. I've never been to Gilgo Beach. I don't know the access points. Like, I couldn't tell you anything about it. I've, I have no idea. And he said, what if they treaded through the marsh the, with the burlap sacks? You would never see them. Uh, he's like, it's a very dark and desolate area. What happened that day? You decide at some point this is not a good idea so after he started talking about everything he ended it with saying oh i live by gilgo beach first of all <laughs> are you kidding me i'm not after telling me all of this you then tell me you live near gilgo beach and it's dark and it's desolate 
So is that weird to me? I don't know. And that's where he wanted you to go? Uh, to his house? Yeah. Near Gilgo Beach? Yeah. When I wouldn't go with him, that's when he started seeming visually very agitated. Almost like I put in all this work. I, I came all the way out to Suffolk. I took you to dinner. I met you in public. Why are you not going back with me? Like, mm. like almost like I owed it to him. Mm. And that's when, like, it, he, even though he seemed agitated, it's he he used his like weight and size to almost try to intimidate me even more. Thank goodness you you, you didn't. I was terrified. I called somebody to meet me in the parking lot to make sure I got to my car okay. When you saw the news break and you saw his picture. I, I immediately texted my little sister and told her to go look at the news. Mm -hmm. And I said, I, I was right, I knew it. Because after that dinner, for years, I'm telling you years, I told everybody, I, I'm telling you I went. She told, she told everybody except the police, <laughs> right? I don't know if I buy this interview, you know? Sounds like too convenient now that she sees him and all of a sudden, you know, she wants to be famous as the one who dated Rex Humerman and survived. I don't know if I buy this story. To dinner with the Google Beach Killer. I know it's him. I went to dinner with him. And I mean, when he got arrested, my sister recognized him. But not only that, it's hard to forget somebody who's like six foot six, 300 pounds, who's an architect in Manhattan and lives in Massapequa. Mm. You know, those are very specific details. So when you saw his image, though, once the news broke, you were like a thousand percent, that is the guy. I'm so sure I could sit across from him today and I'd be like, I know you remember me. Hmm. And if you try saying you don't, like, you're lying. Like, I know he knows who I am. And, I, and this is an important point. You, you've changed, your, your life has changed a lot since then. Yeah. And that's that's a, why I came out and the point I'm making. I don't want to drag my whole history through the mud where everybody knows I'm a former escort or I suffered from addiction or this and that. I want people to realize that I am a mom and a hairstylist and a makeup artist, and I was able to change my life, and these girls weren't. They didn't get the opportunity to get out of that situation. And most people in that situation are vulnerable and desperate and have no other means or outlet or ways to go. And that's one reason perhaps he was targeting you. Yeah. You I think he targeted women that were less likely to go to police. And that's another reason I'm coming forward, because I feel like there's women out there who probably had a lot more of a dangerous encounter with him than mm. I did and got away, who were too scared to talk about it. Mm. Nikki, I wish you the best. Thank you so much. So that was an interesting uh, story. I think in, in the, the theme of uh, sort of unvetted, unchallengeable uh, stories, uh, you know, same thing with Johnny Ray, with his witness that says, uh, you know, Nikki, Nikki also brask, we can't vet what she's saying, if it's true or false. Uh, you know, it's part of this big story of, of, of the Gilgo Beach case. And uh, we'll keep it, we'll keep all of this in mind. You know, uh, at this point of the show, um, I just want to always shout out to the victims and their families. We always remember Maureen Brainerd Barnes, Melissa Bartolome, Amberlyn Costello, and Megan Waterman, who at this time, the three, Melissa, Amber, and Megan, have been, uh, Rex Schumann has been charged with, and hopefully shortly 
uh, Maureen Brainerd Barnes, uh, that case, Rex Schumann will also be charged with. And look, we also uh, remember the families of the, the, the women found in, in the Gilgo area that are not, we do not know who killed them, you know. We're not just forgetting them because of, uh, because Rex Schumann's only been charged with three of these four. Anyway, folks, I want to thank everyone for coming by tonight. Uh, I sort of wanted to cover a little different aspects of the case. And sometimes we it does get repetitive, but there's so many um, so many aspects to this case, so many facts, so many circumstances that are interconnected. And I think it's important to remind people, oh, this happened and then that happened and the chronology and or else it's too complicated really to understand. So I just, again, want to thank everyone for, uh, for for listening tonight. And just keep in mind that we're going to stay on this case. This is Police Off the Cuff, Real Crime Stories. Everyone have a great night, and God bless, and I'll see you soon. One episode, just ain't enough.